Friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me now to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Today we are going to read another very long passage of Scripture, 89 verses this morning. And I think many churches might just skip over a lengthy text like this or maybe just read portions of it. But friends, we truly believe that the public reading of God's Word is one of the most, maybe the most important parts of our time together on Sunday morning. Nehemiah chapter 8 says that Ezra read the law of God to the people of God from morning till midday. And it says that the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Church family, what we're about to read is good for our souls. And so let's lean into God's holy word. We're going to read the entirety of chapters 28 and 29. Exodus 28 verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that you shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, and a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of purple, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signet, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, and it's a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacob, and a gate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes." 
You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two edges of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be the hem of the robe, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy places before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron's, Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them with or, and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests." You shall make them for linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now this is what you shall do to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. 
Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all of the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar." But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and take part of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments excuse me, garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of ordination and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You should put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offerings as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be your portion and you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons a, as a perpetual due from the people of Israel for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contributions to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place, 
And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth sea of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering, and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. And I am already sweating. (laughs) Friends, have you ever experienced the need for a mediator in your life? A mediator is someone who is trained in communication and in problem-solving skills, which they use to help parties to make the best possible decisions about whether and how to resolve a dispute. As you know, there can be legal mediation that happens where someone is the the go-between between two parties in the legal system. There is medical mediation where there's a go-between between doctors and patients. There's relational mediation who, when people are helped, friends and family, to come to a mutual understanding. A mediator is a go-between. And whether you have ever needed a mediator or not, I am sure that you can imagine how important it is to have a qualified and skilled mediator, right? You you don't want to invite just anybody into this role. This is very important. You, You do not want to have a mediator who is unqualified to deal with the issues at hand, nor do you want a mediator who is biased in their perspective of the situation. No, you want a skilled and a strategically positioned mediator to solve your problems, And friends, the same is true in our relationship with God himself. He is a holy God. We have seen this again and again and again. And we are an unholy people. We have seen this again and again and again. And so we have a problem. 
If there is going to be a real relationship between us and God, what do we need? We need a mediator. We need a qualified and skilled go-between in order to help this relationship to flourish. We, we cannot do it on our own. We must have help. This is what the priesthood in the Old Testament is all about. That brings us to our main idea this morning. The, the main idea for our sermon today is simply this. God's holiness demands a holy mediator to make holy his unholy people. God's holiness demands a holy mediator to make holy his unholy people. And to consider this together, we have four points. God's presence, God's priesthood, God's propitiation, and God's promise. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, God's presence. He wants to dwell with his people. We see that very explicitly at the very end of our passage today. God wants to dwell with Israel. That's what the tabernacle is all about. But there is a problem because of our sinfulness. Sinful humanity cannot be in the holy presence of God. And we've seen this already, haven't we? We saw it last week in the courtyard. When you walk into the courtyard, between you and the tent is the altar. There's a separation between you and God's presence. We have seen it in the holy place with that thick curtain separating God's presence from the rest. We have seen it in the fact that if anyone even touches the ark, they will die. And we see it again here today. The word holy is used 15 times in these two chapters. In verse 36, we see that part of the high priest's garment is to be a golden plate, plate which he's to wear on his forehead, which has the words, holy to the Lord. So the man who's, who's given by God to represent sinful humanity in his presence, he must, he must purify himself and wear holy garments, and he must wear a plate of gold with those words on his forehead. Why? Because God's presence is holy. We see it even more in verses 31 to 35 when God gives the description of the robe that the high priest is supposed to wear. Look at verse 33. It says, On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. So there are these, these, these little bells at the bottom of the robe all around the hem. Why? Just to sound pretty? No. Look at verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. The, the high priest is to, to wear this special robe with, with bells on it so that when he, he goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, once a year when, when he went in to sprinkle blood on that altar, if while there he in his human pride decided, oh, the altar is looking a little dusty today, I should polish it off. Or if it looks a little crooked, let me straighten it out. Or if he acts in any unholy way, he would be struck down dead. And they would not hear the bells any longer. And they would know that he was struck down dead. Friends, this is God's presence. He is holy. He is perfect. He is transcendent above all things. He must not be taken lightly by us. His presence is in fact dangerous to sinful people. 
And listen, I know that we don't like to think this way. It makes us squirm a little bit to think of God as dangerous. I think that we often prefer to regulate this view of God to certain Old Testament passages and then just focus on the the grace and the mercy and the loving relationship of God towards us in Jesus in the New Testament. But Redeemer family, we must not do this. We must not do this because God did not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He was not an angry and judgmental God in the Old Testament and then suddenly a God of grace and forgiveness in the New. No, he's the same God. He is as much a God of justice in the New Testament as in the Old and as much a God of mercy and grace in the Old as he is in the New. This is who our God is. He is the lion and the lamb. He is full of grace and truth. Listen, every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them are marked by magnificent holiness and marvelous mercy. The members of the Trinity, they don't play good cop, bad cop. It's not like the Father in the Old Testament is is bad cop and suddenly the Son says, well, I guess I better step in and play good cop. No, they are both and they have always forever been full of both holiness and mercy. Christian, this is so good for us because you do not want a small God. Can we agree to that? You you don't want a small God. You don't want a timid or bashful God. You don't don't want to worship a, a passive God who is indifferent or careless towards sin and injustice and evil. You you don't want to worship a, a God of weakness. You don't want to worship a God who does not make you tremble a little bit. What your soul wants, friend, what, what our souls want, what they need is to see the fullness of God's holiness and majesty and transcendence and to to tremble before it, to know deep in our being, in our bowels, that he is different from us and that he could consume us, that he is magnificent in his glory and holiness and then to wonder in amazement that he would ever look upon us with grace and love. Nothing will make your soul more happy this Christmas season than to see the fullness of God in his majesty and to consider his love towards you. This is who our God is. It would be bad if he were just transcendent and holy and not loving. That would make him a tyrant. But it would be equally bad if he were only loving and not sovereign and powerful. That would make him a big teddy bear and he wouldn't be able to help you with anything in life. We want a God, we have a God who is indeed majestic in holiness and marvelous in mercy and who despite his great holiness has found a way to draw near to his people and to dwell lovingly with them. And that brings us to our second point, point number two, God's priesthood. This holy and transcendent God loves to find ways to draw near to his people, and one of the primary ways is through a mediator or through the Old Testament priesthood. Look at verse 1 of, of chapter 28. It says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. God, God is finding a way to dwell, to fellowship with his people despite their sinfulness. And he does this by finding a a qualified mediator. And he finds this mediator, it says, from among the people of Israel. 
Aaron is Moses' brother, and in a sense, all of Israel's brother. He's, he's one of the people. Friends, there's a lot of care and a lot of love in what we see here. God does not find a solution to our problem by finding someone separate from us. No, he comes and he finds, he calls a mediator to relate to him from among the people. This is very loving of God. The fact that the priest is chosen from among us, it's a significant thing. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Listen, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Every priest was, was chosen from among men because we needed them to act on behalf of men and because it enables these priests to relate lovingly and gently with all the people because every priest that was called was themselves beset with weakness and sin just like the rest of the people. This is actually a wonderful reminder of what godly leadership is supposed to be even within the church today. Now, pastors are not in any way the same as the Old Testament priests, but we are called by God to shepherd the church with gentleness and with loving care. Why? Because we are no different from the church. We too are in need of God's grace. We too are desperate for his mercy. And so we should be very careful about any style of pastoral leadership that in any way lifts leaders high above the rest of the people and makes them feel very separate from the people. That's not God's design. But listen, the, the love and care of God through the priesthood doesn't even stop there. Verses 12 to 14, it speaks about the stones on the shoulders. And, and in verses 15 to, to 30, it talks about the breastplate and how there are to be 12 stones, each with a different name according to the tribes of Israel. The, the high priest garment was likely looking something like this. You can see all those different jewels within it. But why these stones with the names? Friends, because it is a loving statement of God's promise to never forget his people. It says that it is for remembrance. He wants the names of his people to always be in his presence because he wants us to know that he has personally provided a mediator between God and man for us. This is incredibly loving of him. Friend, do you feel forgotten by God? Do you feel unseen by him? Do you look around and feel like God's caring and attending to everybody else around you, but he has forgotten you or, or turned a blind eye to you? Listen, he does not forget. He cannot forget. He loves you and is intending to fully care for you. And not just that, but there's even more. In, in verse 30, you see we see that the, the breast piece is to be a pouch and inside the pouch there is to be Urim and Thummim, two, two stones. We don't know exactly how this worked, but it would seem that this is why verse 15 says that it is a breast piece of judgment. Not, not judgment as in punishment, but judgment as in counsel and wisdom and direction. It seems that at times the high priest would go into the tabernacle in order to seek the counsel of the Lord about matters in Israel's life and to, in order to determine the Lord's will, he would reach into that pouch and he would pull out either Urim or Thummim and one would indicate yes and the other would indicate no. 
So again, we, we see God's incredible care in all of this. He, he chooses a high priest from among the people. He wants that priest to be able to relate to us in our weakness. He wants our names to be on that high priest in order to remind us of how personally he cares for us and he desires to care for our practical and daily needs by directing us according to his will. Church, listen, every time you open your Bible and you read the word priest or priesthood or you consider the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and read long, detailed texts like we did today, you should immediately think, what a loving and caring God I have. How kind of him to call out a mediator from among us to be the go-between between God and man. This is God's priesthood. Point number three is God's propitiation. The priesthood, as designed by God here, is a beautiful expression of God's heart for his people. God has qualified us, has qualified a mediator through the priesthood. But now many of us should be asking, how? How are Aaron and his sons qualified for this task? How are they the answer? How are they the answer to the problem of of separation of God's holiness from sinfulness? How does this fix the problem? Because Aaron is not sinless. In fact, in Exodus chapter 22, just a few chapters from now, we're going to see Aaron oversee one of the most horrific acts of idolatry and sin ever committed with the golden calf. He's not a sinless man. Later on, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are mentioned in chapter 28, verse 1, will be struck down because of their ungodliness in the tabernacle. Levi, the father of the Levitical priesthood, was not a good man either. We see that in Genesis. And so how is choosing Aaron and his sons the answer to the conundrum of God's holiness and our sinfulness? The the priesthood seems to actually invite God or, or our sinfulness closer to God. Shouldn't Aaron and his sons also be consumed by God's holiness with the rest of us? How is this a helpful solution? Well, this priesthood is only a helpful solution because of all that we see throughout chapter 29 and because of something we see called atonement and propitiation. Look at chapter 29, verse 1. It says, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So something has to be done in order to enable Aaron and his sons to serve in this way. Look look at verse four. It says, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So there's a ceremonial washing that needs to happen. But more than just the the washing with symbolic water, chapter 29 is just filled with references about the altar and about sacrifice and about blood and about atonement. Look at verse 10. It says, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 14 says it is a sin offering. It's a sin offering. And we see that it is a sin offering in verse 10 when it says that Aaron and his sons are to lay their hands on the bull. It says something very similar in verse 15 and in verse 19. 
This laying on of the hands is a symbolic transfer that is happening. It's a picture of how these animals, which had never sinned, they had never done anything wrong before God, but these animals are now being put, they're being given the sin of Aaron and his sons. When, when their hands are laid on the bulls and the rams, it's a picture of their sins and their iniquities. And their unrighteousness being laid on the bull and the ram. And when that bull and ram are killed, it is a picture of the sins of Aaron and his sons, which had separated them from God's holiness, now being removed from God's sight. It's a picture of God vicariously judging their sin through this bull and through this ram. And what is the effect of this sacrifice? Look at Exodus chapter 29, verse 21. It says, he and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. This is the effect of this symbolic transfer. Unholy people are made holy. People once separated from God by their sin are now enabled to come into his presence. This is God's propitiation. And it is the only way that sinful men like Aaron and his sons could ever serve as priests in the tabernacle. The wrath of God against their sins, it needed to be propitiated. That means that his wrath needed to be satisfied. It needed to be appeased. It needed to be filled. And when those sacrifices were made, the wrath that would have consumed them was absorbed. And friends, this is at the very center of the gospel that we celebrate here this morning. The picture of the priesthood and their consecration, it, it perfectly pictures God's heart to make unholy people holy again. And that brings us to our fourth point. Point number four, God's promise. Friends, Christmas is all about God's presence. Christmas is all about God's priesthood. Christmas is all about God's propitiation. Christmas celebrates all of these things. What we're seeing here in, in Exodus 28 and 29, it should put us in the Christmas spirit this morning. It is supposed to excite and to thrill our souls together. Everything here pictures the, the many promises of God, promises to, to make propitiation for our sins, not just in a temporary way through bulls and rams, but rather through the ultimate way in his son, Jesus. I wonder what your favorite Christmas passage is. My all-time favorite Christmas passage is Hebrews chapter 2. More than the angel appearing to Mary, more than the shepherds in the field with the host of angels, more than the, the wise men and their gifts, more than the innkeeper and the stable and, and the manger. Hebrews chapter 2 says that because you and I share in flesh and blood, because you and I have physical bodies, because we have flesh and blood, Jesus chose to partake of the same things. He chose to become human with us. He became a baby with little fingers and toes. Why? So that he might be among us and chosen from among us 
so that he can relate to us and ultimately Hebrews chapter 2 says so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God listen to make propitiation for the sins of the people there's that word again this is what Christmas is all about this is the Christmas story the God of the ark becomes the God of the manger and ultimately the God of the cross the God who created this priesthood ultimately becomes our great high priest the God who created the entire sacrificial system becomes our sacrifice for us why friend why so that anyone who believes in him so that all of us who have committed gross idolatry and heinous sins so that all of us who feel guilt and condemnation and shame so that all of us who could never ever ever come into his presence without being consumed so that we could by faith lay our hands on Jesus the spotless lamb of God like Aaron laid his hands on that bull and on that ram and he might die in our place satisfying the wrath of God so that we might still live. This is the glorious exchange of the gospel and it, was, it is what Christmas is all about. We lay our hands on Jesus by faith and in so doing, he takes our sin and he pays the penalty for them so that this Christmas season we don't need to be condemned. So that this Christmas season, we don't need to be buried in shame. We don't need to live in guilt and sorrow and condemnation. Friend, you can be free. You can sing with joy because we have a great high priest who has entered into heaven itself, not just into a, a cloth holy of holies, but into heaven itself. And he has offered himself there as the eternal substitute for the lives of his people. And once he was done offering himself and once he rose from the dead, it says in Hebrews chapter 10 that he sat down at the right hand of God. In the Old Testament, the priesthood never ever sat down in the tabernacle they were forbidden from sitting down why because the work of atoning for our sins with bulls and goats was never done the work was never over and so they had to always stand but it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that anyone who lays their hands on him by faith might be saved forever so that anyone who clings to him by faith can have joy this Christmas season. Not, not because they have the perfect house or the perfect family or the perfect memories or the large budget to buy gifts with, but because they have a glorious Savior, the perfect high priest who made propitiation for his people. Listen, Exodus 28 to 29, it shows the incredible love and care of God for his people, but it is only a shadow of the love which would come to us in Jesus. Listen, do you know what it means for you today? It means joy. It means hope in darkness. It means peace in trial. It means life amidst so much death. It means eternal happiness in the midst of so much pain. 
It means, friend, that you don't need to labor for God's favor in your life. It means that you don't have to do good works in order to save yourself. It means that you can never lose God's favor over your life. Why? Because His ultimate favor is not dependent upon your good works, upon what you can merit. It is upon the, dependent upon the ultimate work of His Son, our great high priest. Do you know what else? It also means that we are now ambassadors of Christ with this good news. We have now, by God's grace, become mediators for God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that because of the work of Jesus, we, you and I, are now being made into a holy priesthood. We now have access into the very presence of God. We can come boldly in prayer. And we, in a sense, are now mediators between God and the watching world. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood in order that we may proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a watching world. Listen, the tabernacle has shown us again and again how Christ is our mediator. You remember the illustration at Perkins Diner with the salt and the syrup and the ketchup in between? You remember the picture of the Ark of the Covenant with God's presence above and with judgment below and the mercy seat in between? You remember the, the court, courtyard and, and God's presence beyond and the, the altar in between? We've seen the same thing today. God, God's holy pre presence within, sinful Israel without, and Aaron and his sons as mediators in between. The tabernacle just demonstrates this over and over and over again. But now, because of Jesus, this is amazing. Now we are a part of that picture. We are a holy priesthood. We are a chosen race. And there is a dying world all around us. God's judgment is coming against our unbelieving friends and family. He will punish them. His sin, his wrath will come against their sin. But you and I have a message of grace and mercy to put in between. We are a holy priesthood called by God to pursue the lost all around us and to say that there is mercy, not mercy from us. We can't do anything for them, but mercy from the great high priest who has died for them. Peter says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, Redeemer family, may we sing and celebrate the work that he's done for us this December, and may we go, and may we proclaim evangelistically to the world around us that there is a great high priest who has done the work that we could never do, and he offers them the same hope and joy and peace that we enjoy. Would you stand with me as we pray?